Hello, ladies and gents. We got Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I have special guest Craig Emmerich on the line today. How you doing there, Craig? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, tell us about yourself. Like, what what got you into keto in the first place? Um, well, I started out as my career as an electrical engineer, and I did a lot of lab work and moved into product management where you're kind of translating very technical things into layman's terms for people to understand. Um, and then my wife, Maria, got into uh, nutrition and then into keto and writing her own books, and it just made sense for me. I was doing all our websites and back stuff and stuff behind the scenes, and it made sense for me to do that full-time. And Ever since, you know, five, about six, seven years now, I've dedicated my time to researching uh, our metabolisms, how our bodies work, and just kind of went down this path to understanding this lifestyle. So now are you keto for the past six or seven years, or were you keto before that? Uh, I was keto probably about six, seven years, yeah, and Maria's been for about 10 or 12 years. Gotcha, gotcha. Were y'all, were y'all keto when y'all both met? When we met, no. Uh, we met, uh, let's see, it's been, a, trying to do the math, about almost 20 years ago, about ni- 19 years ago or 18. Uh, so we were not keto for quite a while, uh, but she found this path to help with some of the issues she was having with PCOS and IBS and acid reflux and, you know, and some of her weight issues that she struggled with. She found this path, and I just – she kind of led by example. I saw the success she had, the energy she had, and I just jumped on board as well seeing that. All right, that's, that's cool. I'm always fascinated by what kind of gets people in it to begin. So was it like a resource that she found that, that led to keto, or, or kind of what was the, the stepping stone there? Yeah, you know, she went to school for uh, nutrition and exercise physiology, and uh, – She's always been very interested in both, and but the nutrition side of it in school was kind of the same old food pyramid kind of discussions, and she knew there had to be more to it because she would follow those guidelines. She was to the point where she's running marathons and still gaining weight, and she knew something, there had to be a better way, and so she started just pulling up every book and research article she could read and then started to write for her first book around what she was learning. Uh, and so everything was really self-taught from that point. Very cool, very cool. And then, like I said, she just led by example. You saw her success and you jumped on board as well, huh? Yep, and our whole family is as well. Our, we adopted two boys from Ethiopia about uh, six years ago. And as soon as they came over, we started uh, f- feeding them egg yolks and bone broth. And, you know, they one of the things you – the myths you might hear out there about keto is that kids it, kids won't uh, grow as well. Well, they came here uh, about four percent on the growth growth charts, not not even hardly registering. And within a year and a half, two years, they were at seventy five percent on the gro- growth charts for both height and weight. Really? Was it hard yeah. to get them to, to switch over, or was that pretty pretty quick and painless? Well, they were one and two at the time, so it was fairly easy we just they kind of just ate what we gave them and we didn't 
you know, a, a lot of what we fed them was just what we eat. Just for the younger one, we just puree it into, its, you know, so he'd have some beef and, you know, a recipe and we just pureed it, pureed it into kind of a, you know, baby food and feed them that. That's very cool because I, I definitely, I mean, like you said, there's a bunch of myths out there about how it would, you know, pertain to, you know, children that haven't finished kind of growing it. And I don't know, hearing that makes me feel a lot more confident in its efficacy for anybody, no matter what age they are. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we're living examples of that. You know, they've been, uh, you know, the one thing with kids for growth is you don't want to limit any protein and they need, they need more protein per pound of lean mass than an adult does Mm -hmm. because they're growing. Um, you know, our kids will get two or maybe even three times their lean mass in grams of protein a day. So, you know, they're little carnivores and they use all those amino acids to build and grow. And, uh, so that's the one difference is they need a lot of protein. You know, they of course also don't do any sort of intermittent fasting or anything like that. They eat a more normal schedule of eating. Right, right. Do they ever get cravings or have they had carbs and just felt terrible afterwards? <laughs> well, there was one incident on an airplane. We were flying to Hawaii and our, uh, ran to the bathroom and our youngest son, Kai, got a drink from the, the flight attendant and they got a, gave him a, accidentally a sugar-filled drink and he drank it and he threw up all over the plane. Oh. <laughs> so... Uh, it was, uh, he learned that, you know, and that's what we try to empower both of them with is knowledge of, you know, this, this is why this is healthy and this is why that isn't. And, you know, making them mindful of how they feel when they do have, uh, something like that does happen that they know that we're doing this because it is the best, the healthiest way for them to live. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's very fascinating. I think, uh, you know, that was kind of like, one of the few holding points for the argument of keto was like, you know, kids. So to hear that and how well they're doing with it, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's motivating. And what's interesting too is, you know, today we switch a kid from breast milk, which let's all, I think everybody would say breast milk's the best possible food for a baby. Mm-hmm. Well, it's loaded with cholesterol and saturated fat it's high fat you know 60 probably 60 percent of the calories from fat and we switch from that to a formula that is basically corn syrup <laughs> and, yeah you know we it, we immediately bombard them with sugar and you know that i think is it, my my son's reaction shows if you're not constantly bombarding them with sugar and they are getting healthy fats and lots of protein their normal body reaction to that huge load of glu- glucose coming in is what he did. <laughs> no, I, I would totally agree. I don't have kids myself, uh, at least not yet. But I'll scroll down, or I'll scroll down the you know the baby aisle in the grocery store just to see what they have, and it's just it blows my mind, like the sugar content and a lot of the drinks that they make for infants. Yeah, it is crazy. I recently saw a, I don't know if it's on the market anymore, but it was a, a baby formula that was chocolate. <laughs> you need chocolate flavored baby formula i mean yeah i mean people can't in their right mind think that's healthy interesting um it's crazy. well i definitely want to dive into uh y'all's book so y'all it, it's not out for release yet right uh yeah the uh the ninth it's so one week one week okay Today. so and, and what's the name of it 
Keto. Period. <laughs> that, that's a pretty cool name for a book. It was. I'm surprised that one was was available. Y'all y'all struck gold on that one. Yeah, just uh, pretty simple and to the point. Yeah, for sure. So I'm looking through like the table of contents now, and there's a couple of chapters that I'd really like to kind of dive into. Um, mm-hmm. One of which being uh, hormones, because there's hormones is like I don't know. There's a lot of misunderstanding around the topic of hormones and. That, that's of all the chapters that's, that's one of the ones that I am probably the least familiar with so I kind of am asking questions out of uh, you know self-interest here but I'd, I'd love to get your take on just kind of you know high level view and you know going into the weeds if you want to about hormones and how that's affected you know with the ketogenic diet in both sexes yeah you know a couple of things on that um, uh, first of all Maria wrote half this book with me and this is actually one of the chapters she wrote she's kind of the expert on hormones but one of the things about hormones that, you know, people don't understand is, you know, everybody's afraid of cholesterol and they're afraid of cholesterol in the diet, which is all just wrong to begin with. Um, studies have shown time and time again, dietary cholesterol intake has no correlation to blood cholesterol levels. Um, but also your body needs cholesterol. I mean, cholesterol is one of these sub- substances in the body that is vitally important and we are the traditional healthcare today villainizes cholesterol and our bodies if you don't eat enough cholesterol they have the liver has to make it because cholesterol is a precursor to all of your hormones all your hormones are made from cholesterol and so if you're taking a statin or you're you know reducing your t- dietary cholesterol intake due to these this um, poor guidance that's being given, you're not making enough healthy hormones for your body and putting extra load on the liver to create all this cholesterol that's needed. Um, so I think this lifestyle in general is really great for hormone balancing uh, because you're providing a lot of substrate for the hormones. I agree. Is there kind of like a, a general guideline or rule of thumb uh, you should kind of stick with as far as the amount of cholesterol you're taking in? Uh, you know, I'm not sure if there's a guideline per se, but, you know, I saw somebody on Facebook post a picture of an omelet being made with like three eggs and like four additional egg yolks. Mm -hmm. And the tagline they put on it was giving my liver a break today (laughs) because the liver, the liver's not going to have to make so much cholesterol today. So, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be afraid of any cholesterol intake. Um, but yeah, you know, eggs are great. Uh, you know, just, I wouldn't, I I don't really track or try to hit a goal or anything like that. I just, I'm not afraid of any of it. And it's, I mean, it makes perfect sense when you, when you think about it. Like I I take that, you know, knowledge into like the bodybuilding scene where I'm familiar and, and most competitors, they, they dwindle their fat down to like, you know, 30 grams at the end, uh, at the end there. And that's just totally, you know, short wiring all of their, you know, hormonal systems, um, I mean, it, it just, it, you know, wreaks havoc on everything. Uh, so, like, for me, keeping my fat high, I didn't have near the, the negative rebound uh, from my testosterone standpoint. Because, I mean, cholesterol is a precursor to testosterone, which is going to, you know, improve all your athletic performances. Exactly. And, you know, if you're doing, like, a protein-sparing modified fast to, to lean up, uh, you still want to get, you know, like you said, enough fat to produce healthy hormones and keep the testosterone up. So you want to get, you know, 40, 50 
d- depending on your goal, I mean, for short a short period right before a competition, you might be able to go down low like that uh, periodically. But you still want to get enough fat to support that hormone. Absolutely, absolutely. What about uh, like the the hunger hormones, like leptin and ghrelin? Can you kind of flush those out for us? Yeah, and this is where you know this lifestyle I think is so powerful. Um, you, I have a I have in the myths, you know, common misconceptions, and, and in the how our bodies work sections, I talk, you know, do calories matter? And one of the things that in this as keto becomes more and more popular, you get more and more voices coming in, and some of them have maybe not the right message or, you know, potentially even uh, a harmful message that they might be giving. Um, and some are saying, you know, calories don't matter. Uh, eat whatever you want as long as the carb, as long as it's keto. Um, and the message here in our book is we're trying to bring it back to a scientific basis that um, calories do matter, but so do hormones. They both matter. It all matters when you're trying to lose weight, when you're trying to heal. And so this lifestyle, it's very good at controlling your hormones, controlling your hunger with your leptin. Um, People, intermittent fasting becomes easy for people when they follow this lifestyle because they're just not hungry. They're not hungry and they don't get the cravings all day long and they don't get that afternoon crash that they do when they're a sugar burner. So you're controlling your hunger, you're controlling your hormones, and that naturally leads to an intermittent fasting, eating a little less calories, enabling you to burn more body fat for fuel. So it's a combination of both those things. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed out you know, that calories do matter because that is definitely one of the misconceptions that I have a hard time hearing because you know it, it is dangerous people will just consume you know way 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 too many calories for what they're they're needing what their body requires and it winds up having long-term you know negative effects um i think there's a lag period so to speak with keto like you can get probably get away with a little bit more calories than necessary for a little bit longer than you could if, if those calories were all carbs but i mean yeah. inevitably it's going to catch up with you well and it's especially dangerous is when you start doing fat bombs and bulletproof coffees and things like that and what's happening then is you're you're getting the fat in, intake way up but at the at the cost of protein and so you're not getting enough protein to support your lean mass and you're getting too much of this fat intake you know look at a bulletproof coffee it could be 400 calories and you guzzle that down in no time uh, you don't feel the satiation that you would if you sat down and ate like seven eggs, which is about the same number of calories. You yeah. know, so chewing registers leptin better, but also you know that fat swapped for protein is such a bad thing, not only for lean mass, but as I talk about in chapter eight, your protein is where you're getting all your nutrients. They're very high in uh, all those micronutrients that your body needs, where the fat has little to none. So you're swapping out all those micronutrients as well. Yeah, I definitely think you know it's it's all it's all a balancing act, and, and every every macronutrient's got its uh, you know strengths and weaknesses, so to speak. It's all got its place, regardless, though. And I think people, um, you know, they need to take that into consideration without a doubt. Yeah, I'd love to like you, like you were touching on there about you know protein um, having all the the nutrients 
carnivore is super, super hot right now. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, um, because, you know, enough science is coming out that, you know, a lot of these micronutrients that people are looking for, you know, vegetables to fill are actually common and with a greater density in, in the meats. So could you kind of touch on that some? Yeah, you know, this is something that um, when I started researching this and developing some of the charts and things for this chapter, it really uh, impressed on me that this isn't common knowledge. Like if you have a plate and you have a steak with uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of fruits and vegetables alongside it and you ask somebody where are all the vitamins and minerals coming from, they'd point to the fruit and vegetables. And yet if you do the analysis and look at meat, just plain beef, it is higher across a wider range of nutrients, of vitamins and minerals than any of them. I mean, against kale, against blueberries, these things that we consider, consider quote, superfoods, you know, you're getting a lot more nutrients from the beef. And that's why, you know, these carna- uh, carnivore-type diets, um, you know, my, I, I myself eat pretty close to that. You know, I, I still have some vegetables in my diet, whether it be some tomatoes or lettuce, et cetera, but it's not the focus of my plate. The focus is the protein. Absolutely. So what, um, like, is there any type of, uh, you know, micronutrient that's, that's not being met by those, you know, quality meat sources? Like, is there anything that, you know, isn't higher quality or is in the higher quality in a type of vegetable by chance? That is a very good question. Um, and one of the things that is known for sure is that depending on the, the macronutrient intake, your micronutrient intake can vary. And so, you know, if you look at what the RDA has recommended for different uh, vitamins and mineral intakes, that's based on eating a standard American diet. Uh, when you eat keto or when you eat a carnivore type of diet, uh, the micronutrient needs are different. You know, first of all, if you're not getting all the inflammatory sugars or omega-6 vegetable oils and that can be easily oxidized and cause inflammation, you don't get as much inflammation in the body, and so you need less antioxidants. That's um, a really good point. Another really important point, and studies have proven this as well, vitamin C intake reduces with the carbohydrate intake. So the more carbs you eat, the more vitamin C you need. The less carbs you eat, the less vitamin C you need. And so, and and also, there's uh, documentation out there shows that when they did the testing of meats uh, for their micronutrient breakdown, they basically just said, "There's no vitamin C, so just don't even test it. Put zero." Where there's some studies that show that certain meats, you know, they'll have two or four. Uh, milligrams, and I represent this in my charts, of vitamin C, which, you know, the body only need in 100 grams of beef, you're getting two or three milligrams of vitamin C, and there's evidence that you maybe only need about 10 milligrams in a day when you're eating this way. So you can easily get that amount you need. Very, very good point. Is there any, like, you know, preference as to which type of meat, like the, the red meat, it's like the beef I've heard generally have better uh, micronutrient profile than like a pork or chicken. Uh, yeah, beef is uh, you know probably one of the tops. Uh, I give a chart in the book as well showing you know different proteins, whether it's poultry or fish, uh, so you can kind of see how they spread out with nutrients. You, you get 
some it's kind of good to mix it up a bit because some of the proteins will be higher in certain uh, micronutrients than beef and then beef will be higher in others so you kind of get that mix is nice but you know beef probably wider range across the board of high levels of micronutrients but if you really want to kick it up uh, organ meats especially beef liver are off the charts probably the most micronutrient dense food there is out there is there like a, a a point at which you're consuming too much you know liver for like too much iron or anything by chance yeah you know what i try to do is um try to mix it in so you know if i'm making and this helps too with our kids because you know they're not big fans of eating liver so i'll, t- I'll take a spicy uh food like a chili like spicy chili uh, our boys love spicy food and what i'll do is i'll take you know if there's two pounds of hamburger going into that chili i'll take a half a pound of ground uh beef liver and mix that in with the hamburger and you don't even notice it's in there and that way you can bump up your micronutrients uh and get a little get a little boost i'm, I'm fascinated in this in this chili recipe what, what else you put in there uh <laughs> we it's a uh We've got a couple different versions of it. In our cleanse book, we have this breakfast chili, and we did a survey of the 60,000 people we have on our Facebook group, what their favorite recipe is from the book, and it was the breakfast chili was number one. So <laughs> I'll be, it's pretty uh, good. I'll be making that one for sure. What, what, all, what else in that? Like you, what do you use for like a tomato base? Uh, yeah, just a, a, a good tomato uh, puree that's not uh, any added sugar or anything like that. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm a big fan of chili, especially during the you know winter months as it gets colder. Oh yeah, it's great. And it, well, the great thing about it too is for leftovers. You know, you you put that in the fridge, and the next day it tastes even better. The flavors meld, and it's it's great. We also have in that book a uh, a bone marrow chili con quito. It's called. It's it's a chili with some bone marrow, which also is really good. Yeah, bone marrow is, is really popular right now. There's there's several companies kind of that have come out with a you know bone marrow in a box type type deal. Is there any? Obviously, you know nothing's going to beat you know homemade bone marrow, uh, bone broth. But is there is there a particular you know brand or, or something that people can turn to just for simplicity's sake? Um. Yeah. You know the kettle and fire bone broths are great. They're uh, made like a traditional bone broth and they'll actually be, you know, the kind of that gelatinous thick before you heat it where, you know, a typical store-bought broth doesn't have all the, all that in of it, all that beneficial collagen and everything in it that a bone broth will. But, but the kettle and fire is good. Yeah. I've had those before. I, it, it's tasty. Quite, quite a bit yeah. difference in flavor than, you know, just a typical broth. Yeah. Huge difference. Uh, so I know that this is probably be a better question for Maria, but I'd uh, I, I want to bounce back real quick to the hormones. Um, yep. One one thing that you know seems to be amplified, either for better or worse, uh, with the ketogenic diet is like women on their cycle. And I've got several female clients, and yes. I've I've learned a lot working with them. But can you kind of like clear up any confusion or shed any light on that period of time as it relates to keto? Yeah, you know, most of our or many of our clients, um, when they come from a standard American diet into this lifestyle, they will see a shift in hormones, uh, and that will 
result in a shift in their cycle. Um, it's normal. It usually, you, you know, you give it a couple of months and things balance back out. We even see quite a few people who uh, believe they're in perimenopause and not getting a cycle start having a cycle again. And I think I think a lot of it relates back to providing enough substrate to get proper hormone levels and your body gets to a more natural hormone state for your body and that can shift the cycle. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, the... I mean, no matter what diet you're on, you're going to retain a little more water during that period too, and and that's yep. often cause for concern. But the main thing is just staying hydrated and being on top of your electrolytes, and that'll just flush out as soon as it runs its course. Yep, definitely. Um, of all the chapters here, what which was your favorite to kind of research in and, and, and write about? I I think uh, chapter three on how our bodies work was really. I, I'm the science geek, so I really get into the science and understanding how our bodies work was was really I, I'd spent a lot of time researching and reading studies and information on that. Um, you know, it's it's really amazing how our bodies have you know these thousands of pathways and and biochemical interactions that all work together in this perfect harmony to keep us alive. And, you know, looking at that and then figuring out ways to leverage that to our advantage was, that was my favorite one to write. Was there anything that you found in your research that kind of took you by surprise? Um, you know, I wouldn't say totally by surprise. I think one of the, there was a couple tidbits I thought were really interesting in that chapter, like, you know, oxidative priority, that's the uh, priority in which your body utilizes fuels that come into your diet and so what it what happens is if you take in a bunch of macronutrients and alcohol is also a prior uh, oxidative fuel um it's gonna take those fuels and it's gonna deal with them in an, a certain order or priority alcohol is number one and the reason is there's no storage for alcohol so it all has to be burned off before any other fuel can be addressed. And so what this means is if you're having a few drinks and then you eat something, all everything you ate, all those carbs, fat, protein, whatever's in it, is all going to go into storage while it's dealing with this elevated alcohol level in the blood. And so you really prime yourself to storage mode when you have alcohol in the system. Um, and... Uh, so that, that was kind of interesting, but what was really interesting is an alcoholic, no matter what diet they're eating, a chronic alcoholic will have an A1C, which is the average blood sugar level in the fours, which is extremely low blood sugar. Even if they're eating lots of sugar and carbs, the reason is when you have chronically high alcohol, oxidative priority says store all that glucose. I cannot deal with it. I got to deal with the alcohol. And so they actually end up with low A1C levels. Really? I did not know that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a strange fact due to the oxidative priority. So I, by default, kind of live in the lifestyle that I do. I don't, I don't really drink hardly at all. I mean, I think I've had a glass of wine, maybe one glass of wine in the past year or two. But, mm -hmm. you know, People always want to kind of know what they can get away with, so to speak, on this diet, yeah. which is kind of unfortunate. They're not really embracing it for the the quality and the lifestyle that it is. But exactly. 
what what would you say to somebody that that is going to drink regardless? What's kind of like something they could do or something they could drink to kind of minimize the negative repercussions? Um, well, you know, number one, I would say don't eat a lot while you're drinking. <laughs> you know, just what I described, you're going to store everything pretty much that you eat. So, uh, you know, keep that to a minimum. Uh, look for look for the alcohols that are extremely low in carbohydrates. Uh, that would be the drier red wines or, you know, maybe something like a rum or something like that. Um, but again, you know, I think if it's at a, an, an occasional event, like a, you know, New Year's, New Year's ball or something like that, as long as you keep it to, you know, a minimum, it, it can be okay. See, that, that's interesting. I, I, I would have thought it had been advantageous to kind of have some fat source with it to slow the digestion of the alcohol, but no matter what, it's just going to preferentially burn that. Yep. So it's better just kind of get it in and get it out as quickly as possible. Alcohol is kind of like a perfect fuel in that it's it's like uh kerosene in the body where it it it's gonna be burned first no matter what and entirely burned off no matter what before anything else gets addressed and so all any fat that comes in with it is gonna go straight into the adipose into fat storage it's a shame it's a shame that it being the perfect fuel cannot be like a a good fuel it's gonna be a bad fuel (laughs) correct i mean perfect is a perfect in the sense that it's it can be burned so easily and has to be burned immediately um but yeah it's not a good fuel (laughs) right right um what about you you were kind of talking about cholesterol and you know how it affects your you know your your blood cholesterol and whatnot what there's a a lot of confusion around uh you know the the diet how it's going to you know affect uh cholesterol your you know potential to have you know heart attack or um, any kind of failure there, what would you say to somebody that, that goes, gets their blood checked on a regular basis? I, I get my blood tested more or less on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, and and those numbers have changed quite drastically since adopting the diet, but what are some typical things to look for uh, yeah. and what's considered good or bad? Because that kind of changes with keto. Yep. Um, in, in the chapter two, I talk about the disease tree, and I talk about how to look for those root causes of disease and inflammation is one of the stems of many of the chronic diseases that are out there so you know again cholesterol is not really the enemy it's a substrate we use for all of our hormones it's a it when you talk about coronary artery health you're talking about cholesterol coming and patching up a lesion that occurred to fix it you know if you punch a hole in your drywall you're going to spackle it over to cover it up that's all the cholesterol is doing is coming to that lesion and spackling it over with plaque to plug it up so that you don't bleed out and die well cholesterol is not the enemy there cholesterol is the firefighter putting out the fire the inflammation that caused the lesion that's the enemy and that you know from high sugar high omega-6s those types of things that can cause that inf- increased inflammation that uh, a keto diet is going to lower. And so you, you want to look for those inflammation markers like CRP, which is a inflammation marker, C-reactive protein. Mm-hmm. You want to be two or less or ideally one or less. Um, or maybe A1C, which tells you how well you're controlling your blood sugars. Um, 
you know, those are the type of things I look for instead of cholesterol. Is there like if, if is there kind of like a, a point at which LDL might be so high that it's worth, you know, getting further tests done? Um, or if like your your A1C and C-reactive protein are good, then you're you're pretty much good regardless of what your LDL is indicating. You know, I'm a little bit on the fence with that. You know, there is familial hypercholesterolemia where somebody has got chronically high cholesterol no matter what um, they do. Um, that is a special case. Uh, but I still am not convinced that if there's no inflammation that that is going to cause a problem. So if you, you're, you're eating a low inflammation diet and you're not getting those lesions in your arteries, there's no reason for the plaque to build up. Right. Um, and one thing you can look at, there's... I describe a coronary artery calcium score in the book. This is a uh, MRI scan of the heart and coronary arteries, and they score it for how much calcium you have built up in your arteries. So it's basically a direct measure of how much plaque you have. Um, we had a client who had chronically high total cholesterol in the three, you know, high 300s. She always had high 300s total cholesterol. Her husband, who's a doctor, always had very low, like 160 total cholesterol. They both went in to get a calcium score. Hers was zero, zero plaque in her arteries. His, even though his cholesterol was always very low, was like 500, which means he was a heart attack waiting to happen. Wow. Was he keto or, or no? Um, he had, he had started, but you know, plaque builds up over 10, 12, you know, 15 years. So this is from his previous lifestyle, but it just points out that, you know, cholesterol doesn't really correlate in any way to arterial, you know, it's the inflammation that causes it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's kind of, it's kind of sad because people will, you know, they'll start the diet, they'll have luck with the diet with everything. And then they'll go and get like a routine, you know, annual exam checkup and their LDL will be higher than it was previously and that'll scare them out of the diet. Yeah. And that's, again, that's that misunderstanding that, you know, the cholesterol is somehow this bad guy. Um, what I, what I encourage any of our clients to do is to get a calcium score done before they start keto. So you can see how much plaque is in the arteries and then get it done you know, a year or two years later, now you're going to see has the diet helped or not. Yeah. And I, I think there you're going to see, you know, if you had some existing plaque, did it reverse and improve or, you know, what, what happened? And I think you're more, you're definitely going to see some improvements. What the, what's the process to getting that done? I've, I've been like on a just data craze lately and, and getting all kinds of tests done. Do I just go into any hospital that's for a calcium uh test or yeah it's a uh called a calcium score um any imaging center will do do it pretty much it's usually about 100 bucks i've seen them where they run a sale for 50 bucks you can get a scan done um but just call around and they should be able to do it that sounds like pretty cheap insurance in the long run yeah you know and it it's definitely like you said insurance where if you come back with a zero calcium score that means you have no plaque in your arteries then, you know, if you're eating a low inflammation diet like this, you're good for 10 years. Maybe maybe in 10 years, go back and get it checked again and see if see how it's going. I definitely think that, you know, like just simply putting putting your own health in your own hands is is the way to go about it. And so many people, they just, 
you know, take what their doctor says, you know, as fact, uh, before they even kind of look at the resources they're pulling from and, you know, taking these tests, taking the time to, to get these tests, even though they're not even that expensive is, is going to do anybody, you know, very well in the long run. Yeah. There's actually a documentary about the calcium score called Widowmaker. And that is kind of eye opening too. And, you know, I talk in the first chapter of the book about how we got to where we got a lot of corruption actually leading to making fat the bad guy back in the 70s with the sugar industry uh, funding these studies. Uh, and, and even recently, there's more evidence coming out about them uh, colluding with studies to try to they knew that sugar was the real culprit, so they tried to get, take the focus off themselves and point it at fat, and they were successful. And for 50 years, we've done that, and it's been to the detriment of everybody. Um, but that applies to a lot of things, and unfortunately, calcium scores is another one. Uh, cath labs in hospitals, that's where they put in uh, stents for when you have a blockage. Mm-hmm. Um, about 30%... First of all, that's like a, a third of the profit that comes into many hospitals. So it's a huge profit center. Um, about a third of the stents they put in didn't need to be put in. So they looked at uh, the, the tests that they run um, that didn't really need to be put in. Well, a, cal- <laughs> a calcium score would tell them 100% conclusively whether they need it or not. And it's only a $100 test. And so these hospitals, they're going to lose a third of their profit from their cath labs. They don't want to do that, even though it's not necessary. What, what it, tests were they running to, to decide on their end? Uh, well, usually they start with like uh, cholesterol, and then they do uh, uh, the uh, where they inject dye, and then they look at the blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, but that isn't as conclusive as the calcium score. Um, and the, the documentary lays it out pretty well that, you know, these these hospital administrators don't want to lose a third of their profit because of properly diagnosing, which is kind of sad that even still to this day that, you know, you got to follow the money with a lot of this stuff. Oh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, really, because, I mean, these are people's lives, you know, and I don't know, like, I, I it just, it's gut-wrenching to even think about that money would be the deciding factor over what's right and wrong for the individual. Well, and it extends to so much like statin drugs. You know, we can't, if we decided that cholesterol was no longer the enemy, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry in statin drugs that is going to fight tooth and nail to protect. I'm about to hit you with a a super, a big, you know, big picture question here. Um, With keto... I mean, it, it's it's all it's a holistic approach, you know. Like you're eating quality foods, you're eating, you know, good foods. You're not using drugs or medication, and but I mean, there, there's it doesn't seem like it's profitable for companies, you know, big pharma, obviously not so much, uh, but like even you know, grocers and like agriculture department. How in the world can keto as a lifestyle become mainstream when it's not you know, it's not a monetary endeavor. That is a very good question. And um, it is true, you know, we actually get because of the satiating effects of keto, even though they're eating higher quality sourced proteins, you know, grass fed meats and those kind of things, uh, the majority of our clients 
find that they spend less on groceries every month than they used to. Mm -hmm. So you're saving money on food. You're saving money not having to take prescription drugs that they get off of. Um, the other things that we suggest in the book, you know, for healing, whether it be, you know, getting cold therapy or cold thermogenesis where you're helping uh, heal with that, um, getting grounding where you get grounded to the earth, getting uh, sensible amounts of vitamin D exposure to the sun, that's all free. You know, this is, you just go outside and take your shoes off and, <laughs> you know, it's all free stuff that you can do. And so it is tough in that respect to that there isn't a profit motive that's going to drive it. So it has to be a, a grassroots kind of ground effort where people, and we see this so much with the, our followers, that they get into this, they try it, they're amazed at how good they can feel eating this way. Uh, their energy levels, their moods, their mental clarity, all of these improvements that they become evangelists and tell all their friends that they got to follow this lifestyle. And I think that's how it's going to happen is more of a grassroots kind of effort. I completely agree there. I mean, it is, it is, it blows my mind, honestly, like how much passion and like just interest is surrounding this, this, you know, ketogenic lifestyle right now. And people are freaking you know, defensive of it, which which is good, you know, because it just illustrates that the, the belief there. But uh, I, I totally think that you're right and that it's going to be like a grassroots type movement to make it mainstream. It's not going to be coming from the top. It's going to be coming from the bottom. Exactly. And, there, you know, there's a few other engineers like myself out there doing the same thing, whether it's, uh, you know, Dave Feldman, who's doing great work on cholesterol. Uh, there's uh, Ivor Cummings, who's doing great work on root cause of disease. There's Marty Kendall, who's doing great work on nutrient-dense foods and how that applies. And those are all engineers that are just doing this on the side just because they want to help with, you know, they found their path as well to their healing and they want to evangelize just like us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What, what, would, you, uh, what would you say for someone that's kind of like on the fence, you know, like what's, I mean, the only way to really experience it is to kind of jump in and, and try it and give it a wholehearted effort. But is there any like thing or example that you've experienced or seen yourself that is a pretty good catapulting factor? Um, I think in general, just ripping the bandaid off and going a hundred percent in is best. I mean, if you don't, it takes longer to get the where you really get feel the benefits, it, it just elongates that adaption time. You know, it takes, uh, I talk about the different phases of keto in the book, and, you know, it, when you restrict carbs to, say, 20 grams a day, you're going to start throwing elevated blood ketone levels in about two or three days, but you're not going to feel the benefits. In fact, you might be the keto flu stage, and to help with that, you got to keep your electrolytes up, uh, keep your water intake up. But it takes about four to six weeks before your body really gets to that state where cravings are gone, your mood increases, your clair mental clarity is better, you don't get those dips afternoon. Uh, that all happens because your body actually creates more mitochondria in the cells to utilize more fat for fuel. Um, so that's kind of the next stage. And you need to stay keto for four to six weeks to get there. But once you get there, if you rip that Band-Aid off and go all in and say, I'm going to do this for a month, when you see how good you can feel, it's hard to go back. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's like a third stage. And, and you know, if you've been adapted for a year or more, 
it's yes. it's amplified that much further. I mean, I've been keto for three years now, and yeah, it's I, I don't know. I just feel I think after a month, you're definitely getting the benefits, but there's more of a psychological pull to carbs still. Whereas after yeah. you know a year, that's just totally on the wayside. Yep, and actually, Volek and Finney had a study done on some athletes where after one year of being keto, they were still seeing metabolic improvements. And so there is an, there is kind of a third phase that is more long-term that makes it a, that really makes this a lifestyle. Absolutely. And that's, that's the thing. Like people, I mean, they have to look at it as a lifestyle. It's not a crash diet. It hadn't, it's not a fad diet. It hadn't been around. I mean, it's, yeah. it's been hot for the past few months, but it's not been around for the past few months. It's been around for, you know, forever. Um, so I think, yeah, that's the main thing. People should approach it with the lifestyle perspective and play for the long game. Yeah, exactly. Well, I could sit here and pick your brain all day long, Craig. I think uh, I'm looking at all these, uh, you know, chapter titles and this table of contents here, and there's all kinds of, you know, all kinds of them popping out that pique my interest. But uh, what, um, I don't know what your schedule is like, but where, where can people go to find more about you? Um. We have a blog with lots of free recipes and free nutritional information. It's uh, mariamindbodyhealth.com. And then we also have a support site. That's keto-adapted.com. And there you can get, you know, make your own meal plans, get support from us, and even attend weekly webinars with us. Um, and then, of course, we're on so- social media. We're Keto Adapted on uh, Facebook and then just Maria Emmerich or Craig Emmerich on Instagram or Twitter. Perfect, perfect. And I'll link out to all those in the show notes here as well. Um, are are you going to be at KetoCon by chance this year? Yes, I am. I am going to be speaking, and so is Maria. So Very good. I'll be speaking as well, so I'll be able to shake your hand in person. Awesome. Well, Craig, I really, really appreciate your time, sir. I know you'll have a ton going on. Uh, you know, you got the book coming out in a week and just beginning of the year all kinds of stuff exciting stuff i really just appreciate you taking time to sit down and talk with me sir well thank you for the time i really really enjoyed it well i'll see you in i guess june yes all right well until june craig you have a great one and uh tell maria i said howdy all right take care take care <laughs>